Scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Kings 3, verses 1 through 15. If you're using the Blue Pew Bibles, it's on page 282. First Kings 3, 1 to 15. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house in the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet, built, had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I, also, I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the word as it was just read. And now we express our deep need for your Spirit's work in our hearts to give us true understanding and wisdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Happy New Year, everyone. I'm excited to start off this new year with all of you with a new sermon series going in the, the book of Proverbs. 
If you've been with us for some time, you know that our practice here at HCC is to preach through books of the Bible, and we, we try to cover whole books if we can. Uh, we also try to alternate between Old and New Testament books, and so we just finished a series through the book of Colossians, and so we wanted to start off our new year in the Old Testament, and so we decided on Proverbs. Now, we are not calling this a series through Proverbs because the plan is not to cover the entire book verse by verse like we did for Colossians. That would be quite audacious of, uh, of a challenge and probably beyond our ability as preachers to do so. Instead, we're calling this a study of Proverbs. Uh, the plan uh, so far is we are going to pretty much preach through chapters 1 through 9 of Proverbs, because there you're going to find sustained discourses that lend to preaching them as whole chapters. But from chapter 10 of Proverbs and on, it's mostly comprised of individual Proverbs. I mean, you know, sometimes they're grouped together by a common theme, but really there's, there's no apparent structure uh, to organize them all, and so they, they do read like, like standalone individual Proverbs. And so that's what's going to make this a real good challenge for us each Sunday, because another distinctive to our preaching in this church is our approach of letting the main idea of each Sunday's passage to dominate and to shape the main idea of the sermon. That's what we call expository preaching. It's a text-driven approach to preaching, which is typically contrasted with a topic-driven approach. Topic-driven preaching is where the preacher first chooses a topic that he wants to preach on, and then he looks for verses and passages that supports what he wants to say about that topic. Now, in the end, it could still be a very biblical sermon, so it's not, it's not wrong or inherently bad to preach that way. But the limitation of topic-driven preaching is that the teaching agenda of the pulpit is ultimately set by the preacher. And what topics are currently dear to his heart or what he uh, thinks that the congregation needs to hear about. But the benefit of text-driven preaching is that the teaching agenda is set by God as he has already laid out for us in each book of Scripture. And so when you just commit to preaching what's there in the next verse, in the next chapter, instead of picking and choosing every week, then you will inevitably touch on topics that you wouldn't have even thought to cover. Or you're going to be forced to deal with issues or controversies you would rather, as a preacher, avoid. And so I think that's a good thing. Think about it. If all of Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, then that means the most beneficial thing for God's people is to expose them to the whole counsel of God as best as you can. And a text-driven, expository approach is the way to go to do that. And that's why we do what we do in this pulpit. But here is where Proverbs, this series in Proverbs is going to present a challenge as well as a unique opportunity. Because if you just take a look at the, the sermon pew card, I think there was one in your, in your bulletin. Uh, there's one probably in front of you. Uh, just you know, take that, you know, especially the one in your bulletin, that's for you to bring home, stick it in your Bible uh, so that you know what's coming each week that you join us. You're going to see there a preview of all the messages that we're going to preach in Proverbs, Lord willing. 
And you'll notice that we're pretty much going to cover chapters 1 through 9 in a text-driven way. But then we've got 12 other sermons that are admittedly more topic-driven. For each of those 12 messages, we chose a topic that we thought was pertinent for us as a church. And then, based on one anchor proverb, supported by other related ones, we're going to unpack what Proverbs has to say about that particular topic, making sure, of course, to set it in the context of the whole Bible and along the overall storyline of the gospel. So this series in Proverbs that we're, going to, that we're going to do is going to give us a very unique opportunity to hear a mix of text-driven and topic-driven sermons, and we hope to be able to show how a book, even like Proverbs, can still be preached in a very expository, uh, text-driven way. But at the same time, we want to demonstrate how to preach a proverb, an individual proverb, in a biblically responsible, responsible way that doesn't sound like we're just passing along some nugget of moralistic advice. It's going to be a particular proverb, a particular topic, but we want to preach it in a very biblical, God, gospel-centered way. Now, you're going to notice that this morning's passage is uh, out of 1 Kings 3, so that means we're not even preaching out of Proverbs today. But that's because we thought that with a book like Proverbs, which you know, genre-wise is so different than the Old Testament narratives or the New Testament letters that we typically preach, we thought it would be beneficial to preach an introductory sermon to kick off and to, to, to kick off this whole series. Um, and so what I have for us this morning are three main goals of what I want to accomplish. Uh, first, I want to help you get a handle of what kind of book you're going to be reading as we go through Proverbs. We're going to talk about the nature of Proverbs and the right and wrong ways to read them. And then, secondly, I want to consider the author of Proverbs, or at least the author of most of the book. We're going to see why Solomon is qualified to write an entire book of Proverbs and why you can trust them as a competent source of wisdom. And third, we're going to talk about how one gets wisdom because it is definitely something that all of us desperately need. So that's where we're going in this morning's um, introductory sermon for this whole series. So the first question, first question we're going to be asking ourselves is this. What are Proverbs and how should we read them? The first step is, of course, to identify the literary genre of this book of Proverbs. Because until you know what kind of literature, what type of literature you're reading, you're not going to know how to interpret it. Now, I think that's rather obvious if you think about it. I think we all instinctively know to read different types of literature differently. When you have a Dr. Seuss book in your hands, you know instinctively that you are to read this book differently than you would a cookbook. You don't expect to literally cook green, green eggs and ham. That, that's just instinctive. You, you don't even think about it when you're reading that thing. When you read, once upon a time, in a land far, far away, you are prepared for one kind of reading, which is different than if the book started it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Which, of course, both genres are very different from a reading that starts like, many factors led to the American Revolution. Among them are, 
And you might find that kind of reading boring, but actually that's probably what the book I would pick up and read. But you, you get that, right? I mean, when you, when you, when you start reading and you, and you begin to sense what kind of book is this, and that's going to shape how you begin to read it. So it goes without saying that we need to know what type of literature Proverbs is. Well, friends, it's called Hebrew poetry. The genre, specifically, is called proverbial poetry. Now, a Proverbs... A proverb is a form of Hebrew poetry, which you have to understand is different than English poetry. You see, in English poetry, the distinguishing feature is, of course, the rhyming of words that end um, at the end of adjoining stanzas. So you have Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. You easily recognize that's poetry. That's English poetry. But the key feature of Hebrew poetry is not the rhyming of words between stanzas, but rather the developing of thoughts. It's known as parallelism. It's where two stanzas are set in parallel relationship to each other. They might correspond with each other. They might contrast each other. However they relate to each other, the whole key to interpreting Hebrew poetry is you have to identify what is that parallel, and then now you, you have to respect how one stanza is informing the other. That's parallelism. It's very common in, 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 in Hebrew poetry, like in Proverbs. Now, another common feature of Hebrew poetry is the heavy use of imagery, of word pictures. So your father's instruction and your mother's teaching can be described in Proverbs as a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Or a a beautiful woman without discretion is described like a gold ring in a pig's snout. Now that kind of language doesn't just inform the mind. It just, it fires the imagination. I mean, giving a young man a proverb like that is going to stick with him much longer than just giving him a laundry list of what to look for in a wife. But you see, all of this talk about parallelism or about imagery and word pictures, if you think about it, would equally apply if we were going through a series in Psalms. So what's distinct about a proverb that's different than a psalm? Well, that's a good question, and you can think about it this way. A proverb is a compressed statement of wisdom that is artfully crafted to be both memorable and practical. I'll say that again. A proverb is a compressed statement of wisdom that is artfully crafted to be both memorable and practical. It's where you take time-tested wisdom drawn from years of experience and you compact it into a short, pithy statement that just sticks with you. As one famous writer puts it, this is Miguel Cervantes, the the author of, of Don Quixote. He once said this, Proverbs are short sentences drawn from long experience. That's a a good quote. Proverbs are short sentences drawn from long experience. And so, friends, it's because of its abbreviated nature, a proverb is not trying to say everything that could be said about a subject. Just like a a bumper sticker or a witty t-shirt 
whatever it does say, a proverb says artfully and memorably. So the whole point of all this is that when you read a proverb, you shouldn't read it as an absolute statement or some kind of blanket promise. They're more like general truisms. They're not intended to be the final word on a subject, but whatever the subject is, they intend to offer practical wisdom for life. So let me just give you a few examples here. If you read Proverbs 26, verse 4, it says this, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. But in the very next verse, it seems to say the exact opposite. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Okay, so which is it? Do I answer a fool or not? Which command am I supposed to obey? But you see, that's the problem. We're reading them like commands. If they were commands, then yes, these would be contradictory commands, but they're proverbs. The first proverb is warning against adopting a fool's way of thinking. The second proverb is advising you to use the fool's own folly to disarm him in conversation. So they don't work as commands, but proverbs work as proverbs, as general practical truisms. Here's another example. Proverbs 10, verse 3, it says, The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. Now, if you read that as an absolute law, then you could easily disprove it with plenty of examples of righteous people who do go hungry and wicked people who live very full and satisfying lives. So does this mean that this proverb is not true? Does it mean that the Bible is in error? No, it just means that you're not reading it like a proverb. Or listen to Proverbs 16, verse 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Now, if you were to take that as some kind of blanket promise, it would seem to imply that if you have any kind of relational conflict in your life, then God must be displeased with you. If someone doesn't like you, it must be because you're not pleasing the Lord. It's always your fault. You see the kind of damage that that kind of interpretation can make? And how would you explain the relational conflict that Jesus experienced? Because he had plenty of enemies. Did he fail to please God? See, do you see how mistaken and harmful it can be if we don't know how to interpret and apply the Proverbs? Like a thorn that goes up into the hand of a drunkard, of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools. That's Proverbs 26.9. It's basically saying that a misinterpreted, misused proverb can cause a lot of pain. It can cause a lot of hurt and damage. It's like a thorn in your hand. And that's why it's so imperative that we learn how to properly read and use the Proverbs. So what is a proverb? I'll repeat it again. 
A proverb is a compressed statement of wisdom that is artfully crafted to be both memorable and practical. They are not, read, they are not meant to be read as biblical commands, absolute laws, or blanket promises. They are general truisms that communicate practical wisdom for life. That's what a proverb is. So we've talked about how to categorize proverbs, how to best read them, how to apply them to life. Now let's deal with authorship. Let's consider who wrote the book and why is he qualified to do so? In other words, why should we even listen to him? Well, the book begins by naming the author. If you look in Proverbs 1.1, it starts with the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. And that's why we chose 1 Kings 3 for our text. So if you haven't already done so, please open up to 1 Kings chapter 3 and uh, follow along there with me. Now, in case you're not familiar, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel are mainly about the story and the rise of David, Israel's greatest king. And the books of 1 and 2 Kings are about David's descendants and about how the kingdom eventually divided and crumbled. Well, the first descendant is Solomon. He wasn't the next in line according to birth order, but he was the Lord's choice, and so David passed the throne on to him. Now, David dies in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 10, and the remainder of chapter 2 is about how Solomon secured his position as king. Now, here in our text, in chapter 3, we get a portrayal of Solomon that's more complicated than the typical constructions of him being this good king who was faithful to the, to the Lord in his younger years, only later in his latter years to be corrupted by foreign wives. That's how he's typically presented to us, but that's really an oversimplification. That would only be the case if you just skipped over verses 1 and 2 and you started chapter 3 and verse 3 where it says Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of David his father. But what verses 1 to 3 together teach us is that Solomon was a man of many loves. On one hand, he is described in verse 3 as someone who loved the Lord. No one else in the book of Kings is described that way. He loved the Lord. He followed in the steps of his father David, who himself was a man after God's own heart. So it is clear that Solomon loved God. Yet he also loved women. Lots of women especially foreign ones like Pharaoh's daughter, whom he marries in verse 1. Foreign women become the other great love of Solomon's life. Listen to 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. So just as special as Verse 3 is that it says Solomon loved the Lord, yet the very next time that that word appears in the book, it's about his love for many foreign women. He eventually ends up with 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, just to be clear, 
the whole issue with him loving and marrying so many foreign women had nothing to do with race and everything to do with religion. That's the concern. Solomon's foreign wives introduced him to foreign gods, which turned his heart from God, especially in the latter years of his life. And yet, even here, though, in the beginning of his reign, in chapter 3, we see hints of this conflicted heart. And it's not just his love of foreign women. He also loved building his own house more than the house of the Lord, more than the temple. He prioritized his palace over God's temple. Look, as it says in verse 1, he took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord. But notice which one comes first. And the wall around Jerusalem. Verse 2, the people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. So that right there is intended to be a subtle rebuke of Solomon for delaying the completion of the temple because he was so preoccupied with building a palace for Pharaoh's daughter. Because there was no permanent temple in Jerusalem for people to worship the Lord, the Israelites resorted to going to the high places. And throughout the Old Testament, the high places are depicted as locations for idol worship. And so because of the fact that he did not prioritize the temple, there was a a, a delay in its construction, Solomon and all of Israel turned to the high places, which dangerously exposed them to foreign gods and to foreign religious practices. So as praiseworthy of Solomon as the rest of chapter 3 is, friends, these first two verses are meant to criticize him. That love for the Lord there in verse 3 was not a wholehearted love. It was divided. His heart was pulled in different directions. And this is just what makes Solomon a much more complicated character than he is typically portrayed. And yet it also makes him a much more relatable character. Solomon is a man who, like us, is torn by conflicting loves. I I think we can really relate to that, can't we? We love the Lord, and yet our hearts are so easily drawn away by other loves. Like Solomon, we're, we're easily tempted by the inordinate love of money, of relationships, of sex, of our homes or our cars or any other symbol of status and success. And just as these conflicting loves destroyed Solomon's spiritual leadership and eventually led to the divide of his kingdom, they have the same power to destroy us, to divide us. So what we need is what Solomon realized he needed. When you have a divided heart, when you're plagued by conflicting loves, it is so hard to know what is the right thing to do in this or that situation. It is so hard to discern things. That's why we need wisdom. Solomon realized this. This is what else we learned about about Solomon. Solomon was a man who needed and treasured wisdom. If we keep reading in verse 5, we're told that the Lord appeared to him in a dream, and the Lord gave Solomon essentially a blank check. He said, ask what I shall give to you. What's your wish? Now, this was really a test. 
a very telling test. How Solomon answered would reveal what is truly in his heart, what he really cherishes, who or what he truly loves. It's the most revealing of tests. Imagine being offered anything your heart desires. And imagine the one who is offering is one who has infinite power and infinite resources to grant whatever you wish. Such a test is going to reveal your true character. How do you think you would answer? Well, this is where Solomon is commended for how he answered. In verse 6, he begins by acknowledging who God is and what God has done out of his mercy, out of his steadfast love. Basically, he says, you're the sovereign one who established my father's throne and placed me on it even though I'm undeserving. In verse 7, He says, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Now, he's not an actual child at this point. By the time he ascends to the throne, we know that his son Rehoboam was already born. What Solomon means here is that he feels very inexperienced and dependent on God, like how a little child depends completely on his parents. And when he says he doesn't know how to go out or come in, he sounds like a little kid who just has, you know, trouble opening up the door. Now, that that expression he uses there is used elsewhere in the scriptures uh, to refer to military leadership. So what Solomon is saying is that he doesn't know how to rule. He doesn't know how to rule over a great army, and yet God has set him over a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. So do you see what Solomon is doing here? He knows he needs wisdom. He's about to ask God for wisdom. But before he goes there in verse 9 to make that request, for three verses he is praising God for his sovereign power and his sovereign grace. He is focused on who God is and what God has done for the undeserving. He is basing his request for wisdom in a healthy, righteous fear of the Lord. He's exemplifying one of his most famous of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Here is a man who knows he needs wisdom, who prays for wisdom, but he roots that prayer in the fear of the Lord. He realizes that all the resources and responsibilities in his life are God-given, and he admits that he is unequal to the task. And that is why he goes to the Lord in fear. He goes to the Lord asking for wisdom with a healthy fear of the Lord. Now look at the actual request in verse 9. This is it, verse 9. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people? So Solomon is praying for an understanding mind. Now, literally, he's asking for a listening heart. That's a more literal translation, a listening heart. Now, in the Bible, you have to understand the heart was understood as the control center of the person. 
So you, your heart is the seat, not just of your emotions, but of also your intellect, also your will, your volition, your, your, your obedience. So a listening heart would be a heart that is primed to hear and to obey. That's what distinguishes biblical wisdom from mere knowledge or mere comprehension. Wisdom is meant to be applied through obedience. Solomon needed wisdom to govern this great people, to discern between good and evil, right and wrong, when faced with difficult decisions. He needed a wise and discerning mind. He needed a listening heart. And God is so pleased that Solomon asked for this, that he didn't ask for gifts just to serve himself. He didn't ask for a long life. He didn't ask for riches or for vengeance against his enemies. And so in verses 11 to 14, God grants him wisdom that surpasses everyone else. He makes Solomon the wisest man on the earth. And that's why, that's why he's qualified to write this book. That's why you should listen to him. There's no one wiser. Listen to 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all other men. And we're told that he wrote 3,000 proverbs and he penned 1,005 songs on a variety of subjects. And all the kings of the earth would travel to Jerusalem to come and hear the wisdom of Solomon. He was the wisest man on earth. If you look back at verse 13 in our text, God said, Because you treasured wisdom above all else, I'm going to entrust you with what you didn't ask for. I will give you both riches and honor, and I will lengthen your days if you walk in my ways. Solomon, now that you have wisdom, I can trust you with these things. Friends, this is a very important observation. Once you have wisdom, that's when God is willing to entrust you with more. So often we're praying for our health, we're praying for our finances, we're praying for justice to be done, we're praying for all sorts of things, and most of which we pray for is not necessarily bad or selfish, but one thing that we can glean from this text is that we should be praying for wisdom first and foremost. Perhaps God is waiting for us to gain wisdom before he entrusts us with more. So let's pray for wisdom, just like Solomon. Let's borrow verse 9. Just take verse 9 and pray as well for an understanding mind, a listening heart. Pray for discernment between good and evil. Now, yes, I, I know some people are going to you know, push back and say, well, you know, you can't really do that with the text. You know, Solomon's situation is unique to him. You know, we're not in a situation where God is appearing to us in a dream, offering that blank check. So yes, I, I, I agree, it would be presumptuous to think that God will grant us whatever we wish, but we can say with confidence that God is ready to grant us Solomon's particular wish. 
and to give us wisdom if we ask for it. James chapter 1, verse 5 says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Friends, have we asked? Have we prayed? Are we asking God for wisdom? Ask and he will give generously. So let's end with one final question. What is wisdom and how do we get it? What is wisdom and how do we get it? Well, we've already mentioned that wisdom is not limited to merely possessing intellectual knowledge. Wisdom um, has to do with knowing what to do with that information and then doing it. So just knowing a whole bunch of facts about a subject might make you knowledgeable about that subject, but you're not necessarily wise in it. So a a 600-pound man might be knowledgeable in the subjects of dieting and exercise. He could ace a test on it, but he wouldn't be considered wise in it. In the same way, you can be knowledgeable in the Bible. You can be knowledgeable in theology. You could ace a test. You could tear it up in Bible trivia. But unless your life is being reshaped and reformed by that knowledge, then you are not yet wise in the things of God. Interestingly enough, the Hebrew word for wisdom that's used throughout Proverbs, it's translated as the word skill in Exodus chapter 28, verse 3, where it describes the skill of the tabernacle workers, the artisans who made the tabernacle so beautiful. It's also found in Ezekiel chapter 27, verse 8, to describe the skill of sailors. So that means the biblical concept of wisdom is more like a skill. According to Proverbs, you could say that wisdom is having the skill for living in the fear of the Lord. Wisdom is the skill of living in the fear of the Lord. To be biblically wise means you know how a healthy fear of God affects and directs our daily lives. It means that you have the skill and you have the will to apply that healthy fear to your relationships, to your speech, to your finances, to your work, to your parenting, to whatever subject it might be. Friends, Solomon's wise counsel, the wisest man on earth is counseling us to develop this skill, to get wisdom. Listen to Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. Now, we just said earlier that to get wisdom, you've got to pray for it. God is the one who ultimately grants us wisdom, but we also get wisdom. Friends, we we get wisdom by digging into the Scriptures. If you just look prior to our passage, look in 1 Kings chapter 2, Verse 2 to 4, this is David giving his last words to his son. And his last words are a charge for Solomon to stay in God's word and to keep it. 
If you want to be a good king, Solomon, this is what you have to do. You've got to study the scriptures. You have to be in the word. David learned this from scripture itself. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 18 to 19, that every single king of Israel is required to write out a copy of the law for himself, for his own personal study. Quote, he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. So Solomon learned the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, by closely studying Scripture daily, just like his father. I mean, friends, really, there is no shortcut. No one has ever grown in biblical wisdom apart from a committed reading and studying of God's Word. And that's really what we hope to get out of this series in Proverbs. We're getting into the Word so we can get wisdom. But in the end, in the end, you can read the Bible every single day, cover to cover, but that alone is not enough to make you biblically wise. Wisdom that comes from God is obtained not merely through a routine like Bible reading, but through a relationship with a real person. The wisdom that comes from God, the the wisdom that Solomon wrote 3,000 Proverbs about was one day embodied in a real person. It's as if wisdom stepped out of the book of Proverbs and into the person of Jesus Christ. According to Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, with the coming of Christ, something greater than Solomon has arrived. Solomon was the wisest man on earth, but Jesus is infinitely wiser. Jesus is the wisdom of God in the flesh. So, Scripture is essential for wisdom. But 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 says, Scripture is able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ. A relationship with Jesus through trusting in him, that, my friends, is the first step to getting wisdom. Without a relationship with Jesus, Proverbs, as we go through it, it's going to read to you like an ancient book of wise sayings that's really no different than if you were reading uh, uh, the writings of Confucius. It's just pithy statements. Just open up a fortune cookie and you can get the same thing. But through faith in Christ, Proverbs is able to make you wise for salvation with the wisdom of God. And as you take that step of faith, my friend, just be aware that God's wisdom in Christ is not always going to make sense to the world. Just as the cross of Christ was a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles, don't expect biblical wisdom to always align with the world. Biblical wisdom looks looks like a life of self-denial, of self-sacrifice, of cross-bearing, forgiving your debtors, loving your enemies, not seeking vengeance, but, but entrusting final justice into the hands of God. 
Biblical wisdom is not the wisdom of this world, but it is the wisdom that you're going to need for life, especially for eternal life with Christ. Father, this is our hope, that you would grant us this wisdom, this understanding mind, this listening heart. That's what we need. That's what we want from you. And so as we go into your word, as we study your word together as a church, individually, in our, in our own times with you, may you introduce us more closely and deeply to your son Jesus so that by faith through him we would be made wise, wise for salvation, wise for life with you. In Jesus' name, amen.